0: Lord, we thank you for your word, we thank you for your message, and we just pray the Holy Spirit come upon our hearts. Open up our hearts, open up our minds to receive your word. Lord, just show us the things that you want us to hear. And Lord, if I don't cover it this morning, just make it um, known to the, each individual and hear this morning what it is exactly that you're speaking to. So Father, <clears throat> we thank you for this time to get together, Lord. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. So 2 Timothy, as far as an introduction goes. Now last week we covered First Timothy Now, the conditions surrounding the Christians have grown increasingly worse as we get into 2 Timothy. During the context of this, we see that Rome has burned. Rome burned in July of 64 AD. And as a result, Caesar Nero had blamed the Christians, and it had become very dangerous to be a follower of Christ during this time. It was also dangerous to have contact with leaders of the church, such as Paul. Paul ended up in Rome as a prisoner again now for his second time. And that's where he is, writing this. He had already had his initial hearing. He was awaiting trial as he wrote this epistle to Timothy. Paul believed that the Roman authorities were about to execute him. So this was the mindset of Paul during this time. Paul was most likely, most likely executed under Nero in 68 A.D. So Paul is writing this letter, 2 Timothy, in around 67 A.D., One year before his death. So, as a result, Christians began to seek a lower profile and became less aggressive in spreading the gospel message. So, to put into context, if you remember September 11th, 2001, and let's just say the president at the time declared that all Christians are guilty for September 11th and the tragedy that had happened. And we have um, countrywide persecution against Christians would we have been as bold during that time to continuously proclaim the message or continuously to identify ourselves with Christ? This is the mindset that Timothy is under and the Christians are under during this persecution of Nero, the sense that Rome had burned, Nero has blamed the Christians, and we see this throughout the next couple hundred years of church history unfolding as you look back the pagans would always blame the Christians for everything that went wrong. And why is this? Is because the pagans believed that since they were just worshiping this one God, the gods were angry and these tragedies were happening because the Christians weren't acknowledging their multiple deities. Same thing here with Nero at 64 AD. Blaming the Christians for everything, they're under intense persecution. So Paul wrote this epistle to urge Timothy to remain faithful to his calling and to remain faithful to Paul as he's writing this letter to him. So now, the unique characteristics of 2 Timothy. It's a very personal letter, full of encouragement as Timothy faced the persecutions he was facing in Rome. It's not intended to be a theological survey. So it's not like bullet point, bullet point, but it's more of a very deep, personal letter. Now, if we look inside our bulletins, we're going to see the outline we're going to follow this morning. 2 Timothy reveals the true minister of Christ, which all believers are. It reveals the sources they use, their methods of approach the opposition they are up against and the rewards for faithful service so this is how we're going to break down this synthetic study this morning these four points and this is what the uh, encompasses pretty much the letter to second timothy here the sources they use let's look at this one number 1 sources used by the minister of christ number one gifts of god or god's gift if you guys remember Acts chapter 2 when the day of Pentecost came and Peter has given his sermon and he stands up and he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God literally taking residence inside of us and conforming and transforming our hearts into the image of Christ, guiding us and leading us. This is a gift from God. 2 Timothy 1.6, look at verse 6 in 2 Timothy. In chapter 1 it says, For this reason... I remind you, and my version says to kindle afresh the gift of God. Other versions say to stir up. Others say to fan into the flame, to keep ablaze, or to rekindle. So what Paul is urging Timothy is the gifts that God has given you, the spiritual gifts that the Lord has given you through the Holy Spirit, keep them fresh, keep them lit, keep them kindle. All Christians have at least one spiritual gift. 1 Peter 4:10 says this: As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards for the manifest grace of God. So each believer at the time of conversion receives at least one spiritual gift. Now it's up to us to read the scriptures and to figure out how God has gifted us, what he has gifted us, what talents are we born with, and how does God want us to minister? What ministry have we been called to? Timothy received special abilities from the Lord, from Paul at his ordination, and what Paul is doing is he's encouraging Timothy to keep the fire going. So everybody, it was, it's Fourth of July weekend, last night my wife and I had a small little campfire outside, and every about 10, 15 minutes I have to continuously either turn the log over, shift it this way, put a new log on, dump some more lighter fluid on, whatever it needed to keep the fire going rekindling it, keep it going. If I were to sit in the chair for about 20 minutes and just let the fire go, naturally it's just going to dim and go out and in the morning there'll be nothing left. Same thing with our spiritual gifts. We want to keep them fresh. We want to keep, in a sense, like the uh, pencil, very sharp, very usable, very on point because we can become dull. Our hearts can become heavy. We can lose that fresh relationship that we have with the Lord. There's a great piano player. He once said this, if I miss practice one day, I can notice it. If I miss practice two days in a row, the critics start to notice, and if I miss practice three days in a row, everybody starts to notice. And this was from a very good piano player. So it doesn't really matter how good we are at something; we can become dull at it. We can't. We can lose our zip or our snap or the, or the speed on our fastball, so to speak. We can lose that. So what Paul is. Refreshing Timothy here is during this time of persecution to keep his heart fresh, to keep his mind sober and on point, right on the Lord, right where he wants to be. That's what Paul is reassuring him here. That's the first gift. Now, number two, the second gift that we see, God's grace. Grace refers to all of God's resources that are available to us through Christ. It's what God has given to us as believers. Now, I want to go over a couple terms here this morning, a couple Theological terms that just put into perspective where we are as Christians and the spiritual blessings and the grace of God that we have received in Christ. First of all, redemption. Redemption from what? From our spiritual separation from God, from our sinful nature, and from the curse. So we're all born with sinful natures. We inherited from Adam. God has redeemed this from us as believers. Reconciliation, what's this? It's the exchange of hostility for a friendly relationship. The Bible teaches we're all born enemies of God, and this reconciliation, this ministry of reconciliation, has changed the tables, it's turned the tables, so to speak, from a hostile relationship to the Lord to a friendly relationship with the Lord. This is our position in Christ. Third one, it's a pretty big term here, it's called propitiation. Really, what it means is making amends for all wrongdoing. God's wrath is satisfied. Forgiveness from all sin, past, present, future, all sin being forgiven, gives us a very clear, clean, conscience. we know we can come before the Lord in faith, we boldly can come before the Lord's throne in faith, because all of our sins haven't been taken away on the cross. Justification, we're made right before God, our position before him is not based upon any work that we can do but it's based upon Christ's finished work on the cross. We have this confidence in the Lord. Sanctification, the ability to grow and to conform to the image of Christ, that who we are today doesn't necessarily mean we have to be this person five years from now. We can grow, we can mature spiritually in the Lord. It's a continual process. Glorification is our guarantee of eternal life. Adoptions in a relational sense that we are sons of God. And heirs, we inherit eternal life with Christ. All of these are God's grace. All of these are where our stand. This is our position as a believer. And a lot of times, we can take our focus off of the Word of God and off of Christ in His finished work, and put it on whatever is distracting us at the moment. And we can become dull. Our hearts can become dull. We can become a little bit bitter. We can lose that skip in our step because we're not keeping our focus on what Christ has done for us. Rather, we're looking around and seeing a world that's coming undone, and our mind is focused on these types of things. Also, one more thing I want to include in this is God's providence. Now, what is this? Providence means that God has not abandoned the world, but rather works within the creation and works everything according to the counsel of his will. You guys remember Romans eight twenty-eight? God works out all things for the good to those who are in Christ Jesus. So, if we really step back and analyze the grace of God and seeing that everything that has already been accomplished in Christ, we really see that our position is excellent. Even though our current circumstances may be difficult, like Paul and Timothy were facing in the Roman Empire during this time, the key is not to take these things for granted. So, methods used by ministers of Christ. Number two. Let's read 2 Timothy 2 1 through 7. It says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men, and you will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who is enlisting him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So what we're seeing here now in 2 Timothy 2, 1-7 in verse 1, notice it says in verse 1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's not merely just understanding it, but it's applying it. Every single day, we are absolutely sure of the foundation that we stand on every moment we wake up and every moment we go to bed. We know we are in the grace of Christ to be strong in this. And in verse 2, these things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what we're seeing here is each generation that comes is responsible for teaching the generation that it produces. We can't take for granted that the children that we raise today automatically just by osmosis understand the gospel. The culture that we are in at the current moment, we are responsible for teaching it. Because if you look back at some of the old preachers, Charles Spurgeon or John Wesley or um, Jonathan Edwards, those kind of guys, 100, 200 years ago now, could we really recite any of their works? This stuff kind of just falls by the wayside as new generations come up. They wrote excellent things. They were very intelligent people. A lot to be gleaned from those individuals. But as generations continue to go, all that good preaching and all those good writings kind of just fade by the wayside. It's our responsibility as Christians to keep bringing these things, bringing these materials, bringing the gospel afresh to each and every single generation that we encounter Suffer hardship in verse 3 with me, as good soldiers of Christ. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. It says, free from entanglement. And the question is entanglement from what? From lesser goals and activities. Was that one movie? I think it was called Up with the hot air balloon, and you had the dogs. And every time they saw a squirrel, their attention would be on the squirrel in the tree. They had, they were doing something, but then a squirrel would come along and boom, there would go their attention. Kind of like us, we're very similar in that sense. We know what the scripture says. We know what the Lord wants us to do. But on a day-by-day basis, we can find ourselves putting our mind and putting our energy into things that aren't necessarily what God wants us to do. Now, obviously, Paul did not mean that the minister should always give all of his time to preaching and teaching. I know, Hobbies aren't bad, but he meant that we should not let these other activities take away from what the Lord wants us to do. Now with hobbies, obviously there's nothing wrong with hobbies. They're fun. They kind of give, let our mind relax. We can refresh ourselves. Normally, and especially with hobbies that are competitive, who ends up being the best at them? It's the one who dedicates most of their time to the hobby. So if you are involved in a hobby like I have been quite a bit in the past 10 years, that's competition. You know, it's fun competition, but it's still competition. The individual who ends up being the best is the individual who pretty much dedicates his whole life to the hobby. So if you're part of the group and you're in last place, you kind of think to yourself, well, I've got to dedicate more time to this hobby. I want to beat the guy who's the best. I want to compete at a state level. I want to compete at a national level. So you get involved and you get involved and you have to put all of your mind, all of your energy into this hobby to be the best. Well, at the time, the Lord is calling us to do other things. Hobbies can become distracting in this means. It's not that hobbies are wrong necessarily, but once we get in them and if we start to like them and it starts to get fun and we start to set goals for ourselves, we start to see, oh, this person's, I want to get that to that level. And we get to this level, oh, this person's at this level. And we we can kind of see how we can just drift away from the Lord wants wants us to do unintentionally, but we're still doing this. So what we're seeing here is they take up our free time. Not that there's anything wrong with them, but the focus is to be on Christ. So in verse 5, Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he, he competes according to the rules. Now, it's interesting. In ancient times, competitors at the Olympic Games had to swear an oath, Before the statue of Zeus, that they had been in strict training for 10 months. So they had to go before the statue of Zeus, swear an oath that they will be in constant 100% training mode for 10 months. And likewise, the believer has to be doing the same thing according to the ministry in which we are called, dedicating ourselves. Romans 12 1 through 2. It's like as a living sacrifice. This is my sacrifice to you, Lord. It's my time. It's my mind. It's my heart. It's my energy. This is what I'm laying before your feet as a sacrifice. Like in ancient times before the statue of Zeus, so must we do with our minds and hearts before the Lord and what he's called us in. So for instance, if we're called for a Christian education, it's going to school. If we're called for counseling, it's taking the time out of your day to sit down and to actually listen and to learn the situation that the person is explaining to you. If you're called for hospitality, it's for fellowship, for hanging out, a place of fellowship in those types of things. It's for teaching, it's in your preparation of the message. If you're called for missions, it's learning the language, it's learning the culture, it's learning the history, all of these types of things. And in verse 6, "...the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive the share of his crops." So a farmer must continue to sow the seed and water the seed in the soil if it wants to produce fruit. So must we continuously be setting our mind upon God and what he's called us to do. So the question is, it's finding out what has God called me to do. And the second thing is, how much of our time are we dedicating to what he has called us to do? Those are the two points that Paul's making here. And in verse 7, consider what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. A good analogy of this is when I'm about to cook rice, I fill the pot three quarters of the way up and I set it on the stove and I turn it all the way on high and I let it sit there for five minutes because it has to boil before I can throw the bag of rice in. Or if I'm really lazy, I just throw it in and just wait for it to cook up. But the whole goal is to get that water at a boiling peak at at the level 10 and to keep it there to cook the rice. Same thing with our walks, same thing with keeping our hearts and our minds fresh. We want to stay at that boiling point where we're right on point with what the Lord wants us to do. But if I was to turn the boil or the burner off, walk away for 10 minutes and then come back, it'll still be pretty warm. If I wait a half an hour, it's going to be cold. So what do I have to do? I have to start the process again, turn it back on 10 and get it to boil. What we want to do as Christians is keep ourselves at that boiling point, not necessarily in a legalistic sense. That, okay, each day I'm going to put exactly two hours into this. But in a relationship sense, are our minds and our hearts continuously in tune with what the Lord wants us to be doing? Next, the Christian's number one weapon, the Word of God, known as the sword of the Spirit. Now the Bible, the book you have in your laps, when abused, can be one of the most dangerous weapons that we contain on the face of the planet. The Bible, when improperly interpreted, improperly taught, can deceive more people than anything else. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 15. It says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I don't know how many different cults I've studied, how many different cultic theologies I've looked at when they interpret a verse and how they apply it, or when they read a verse and how they interpret it. And you're just like, how did they come to that conclusion? And they have thousands of followers. And they believe this crazy, ridiculous doctrine. And I'm sitting here thinking, how, in, how does it come to this? Well, let's look at this verse here. It says, be diligent. What does that mean? It says, be zealous. Take pains. Make every effort. Try as hard as you can. Kind of like if you're cutting down a tree or cutting down a weed, or necessarily a box elder tree, which is kind of both, a weed and a tree. If you cut it in half, it's going to grow back. You cut it at the bottom, it's going to grow back. You have to get to the root of the tree. The same thing with the Bible. We have to go all the way to the absolute source of its origin and understand its context, its background, the situations that occur. So, for instance, 2 Timothy was written by who? Paul. Who was it written to? Timothy. What were the surrounding circumstances? Roman persecution, Caesar Nero, 64 AD, the fire, blaming it on the Christians. So we can start to get into the background, into the culture that they were in the Roman culture. It was written in the Greek language, so English isn't going to suffice. We have to go back to the Greek to get right to the root of the problem, right to the root of the word. Understanding definitions, understanding grammar, all of these things are important into correctly interpreting the scripture. Now, the problem is, is what, what somebody does is they take one verse out of its context, and build an entire religion around that one verse. Let me give you an example here. Doctrine of Covenants is the Mormons, one of the Mormon's religious books. Chapter 130, verse 22, it says this, The Father has a body, referring to God, the Father has a body of flesh and bone as tangible as man's. And you sit here and you think, well, I thought John 4.24 said God is spirit. Joseph Smith said, God was once a man like us. He is an exalted man. Okay, so you ask them, show me some verses that prove this to me, that God's a man. And they'll be like, sure. They'll go to Isaiah forty-nine sixteen. Behold, God says, I have inscribed you in the palms of my hands. So God has hands. They could go to Proverbs fifteen three. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over evil and over good. So God has eyes. See how they did that? proved that God has eyes and God has hands. Well, what they've done is they've taken these verses out of their context. They're speaking metaphorically of God. They're not to be taken completely, absolute, 100% literal, recognizing figures of speech in Scripture, that the Scripture uses metaphor, like or as. So it's illustrating a point with an analogy. That's all that's happening here. But what can happen is people can take those verses out of their context, start a religion, start a cult, and then... It's all downhill from there. Back to 2.15. Present yourself approved, meaning try as hard as you can with what the Lord has given us. As a workman or as a laborer, one who works for the gospel. No need to be ashamed because he has put everything he has into the scriptures. Accurately handling the word of truth. The word accurately meaning indicating proper method of biblical interpretation. Like we just said, context, background. Grammar, those types of things. It's interesting here in 2.15, the word handling means to cut a path in a straight direction so the traveler can go directly to their destination. And that's what we do when we read the Bible, we understand the Bible, and we teach the Bible. We're cutting a straight path from, from men to God. And if we are going to be ignorant in this area, or if we are going to be deceptive in this area, and we're cutting a path that goes this way, and God is over here, and we stand before the Lord in judgment, we're going to have to give into account as to why we have misled and deceived people. And I wouldn't want to be that person on judgment, Day. but that's how serious this becomes. Accurately handling, cutting that straight path so somebody can get from one destination to the other. Keeping on this topic, go to chapter 3. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. Paul says, All Scripture... Is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What does Paul mean by all scripture? It's referring here in context to the Old Testament writings. The New Testament was still under construction during this time, it was still being written. So the Bible for the Christians in the first century church were the Old Testament scriptures. But this applies to the New Testament as well. The New Testament was first communicated orally, then it was written down. Both the oral transmission and the written transmission are the gospel, are the word of God. What Paul is doing now is he's placing emphasis upon the written scriptures. What was written down. In the Greek, the word is graphe, the writings. Now look at that word inspired here in 16. Inspired by God. Some translations may say others. I think the best English translation that brings us out the best is the NIV. It says God breathed. And if you look at that word in Greek, it's theanustas, which literally means God breathed. So all scripture, The writings, which we have in this book, the 66 books, are God-breathed. So, the Holy Spirit moved the author when they were writing. The words that were written were literally God-breathed. The authors were not inspired, but they were moved. The words themselves are what were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's interesting to see here, where else do we see God breathing in Scripture? anybody can recall, God breathed. Where else do we see this? If we go back to Genesis 2, we won't turn there. Genesis 2, verse 7 says this The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So God breathed into our nostrils. This is what our source, our origin of life is. God breathed the very words onto the page that the New Testament and Old Testament authors had written. So do we see the connection here between the soul and the internal makeup of man and the connection to the word of God? It's pretty interesting here. I think there's a corollary. God breathed into us for the breath of life. God breathed onto the pages The words that the authors had written. That's why the word of God is the nourishment to the soul for the believer. If we want to hear what God is saying, we come to his word. And it refreshes our souls. I think there's a connection here. Verse 17, it says, "So that." Now here's the purpose. It's a henna clause. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Adequate meaning he meets all of the demands. Equipped meaning he's ready for service. Wherever the Christian goes. Whatever scenario the Christian encounters. He has the word to fall back on to equip him in what he is doing. So the Bible is the source, the standard, the authority, the manual. It's God-breathed scripture that's the basis of the Christian church. Here is our source for all truth. Now moving on to method here. How Christians should conduct themselves. Let's go to 2 Timothy 2, read verses 24 through 26. 2 Timothy 2.24 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. And they come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. It's a very eye-opening set of verses here. The thing we have to remember when we're engaging our culture or when we're sharing the gospel with people is disagreement does not equal hate. Just because we disagree with somebody doesn't mean we hate that person. They're not corollary. They're two different things. Just because we disagree with a person's lifestyle does not give us the right to bully, to mock, to make fun of, or to disassociate ourselves with a specific person. As Christians, we are called to have love and respect for all people. Now, why is this? Because each person has equal value in the sense that they're created in the image of God. So if we were going to ask, what is the number one complaint against Christians? and if we want to specify specifically with the LGBT community, what is the number one complaint that they give about Christians? They say hate. And Christians, to be honest with you, can come across very hateful. They can come across very blunt in a sense where there is no love and it's nothing but anger coming out. So how they treat this is, okay, Christians hate. That's not the sense. That's not the way we're supposed to be ministering. As Christians, we don't hate, but we disagree. As Christians, we can disagree with somebody without hating that person. We must love the individual enough to share the gospel without compromise, but to do so in gentleness, kindness, and not to be quarrelsome, or meaning not to start an argument, or not to start a fight, not doing it with bitter intentions, not to just unload on somebody, but it's to be very calm and to be very patient. Nobody has ever bullied, mocked, or mistreated somebody into the kingdom of God. It just doesn't happen. Love is what does it. Now, this applies to all types of sins. 1 Corinthians 6 mentions thieves, drunkards, fornicators, adulterers. And then right after that, it says, Such were some of you. So we have no foundation out of self righteousness to judge or to hate anybody. But we have the grace of God, we have the love of God, we have the peace of God in our hearts. We have what the scriptures teach. Now we're not to compromise in any area, but we're to do so kindness and in gentleness. Now, the third point here this morning, the third point on the outline is the opposition facing the minister of Christ. Let's go to 2 Timothy 2, chapter, i uh, sorry, 2 Timothy 3, and let's read through verses 1 through 7. It says, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and take captive weak women weighed down with their sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Look at verse 5 here. It says, Holding to a form or an outward appearance. And I'm noticing this more and more as I talk to more and more people. On the outside, people can seem pure as the wind-driven snow. You would never think anything negative about people. Their house looks nice. Their lawn is cut perfect. They have great cars. They have great jobs. You think everything is going great. And the more and more you get to know certain type of people who aren't Christians or have a passion for a certain type of sin, the more and more that facade comes off. And we're seeing this with people who have a form of godliness. But the power or the substance is what they deny. And this is the difference between the saved and the unsaved is we have the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, which conforms and changes us where the unbeliever does not. So after a while, that outward facade comes off. Verse 7, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of truth. And it's interesting, in all of our universities, not all, but most of our universities, becoming completely secularized as they are. Brilliant minds with lists of academic credentials a mile long, Look at the universe and say it created itself by random chance. And you sit here and you scratch your head and you're just like, you are such a smart individual. And you look at everything around and you're going to tell me all of this came from nothing? By random chance that this all created itself? This is the level of depravity man has to go to if he wants to deny the existence of God. He has to completely check his mind at the door and place his faith something and that's completely irrational. So the goal of this is pure autonomy. What do I mean by that? God has created us. God is the center of the universe. We take God out of the center of the universe and we place ourselves where God is. And that's simply what man wants to do. He wants to eradicate God from every single place in our culture and he wants to place himself in the center. Just like it was passed a couple days ago um, on a Christian website, I think it was Christian Mingle or something, I saw this on an on a, on a article online, and it said that a judge in California mandated that on a Christian website there has to be a spot for homosexuals. And again, we disagree with that, but what's happening is now our rights are being imposed on the other way. Even though we disagree with that lifestyle, we want a website that doesn't have that, well now it's in reverse. Now their rights are starting to trump over the Christian rights. And we're going to start seeing Christian rights being taken away all over the place as God is being taken out of society and man is now placing himself as the center. Pretty soon, God's going to be eradicated from society. Lovers of self, autonomy. That's the culture that we're living in today. Let's go to 2 Timothy 4. We're going to take a look at two verses here quick. Verses 3 and 4. It says, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Now, the question we have to ask is, what is sound doctrine? Going back to Second Timothy 3.16, that's what is, which is God-breathed. Theanostaths, sound doctrine. Notice it says here, wanting to have their ears tickled. Instead of telling an individual what they need to hear, people today want to be told what they want to hear. And an example that we see in this in our culture today is we have a church like this over here in Appleton. It's, it's called the um, Unitarian Universalist Church. And what they do is they create a positive, happy environment. And I understand what they're trying to do. There's enough negativity in the world that everybody comes together on a Sunday morning. But the thing of it is, is when they come together on a Sunday morning, There are no absolutes. So you can have a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Christian, an atheist, Islam, whatever background, come to this church and they're all going to worship together and they're going to leave the negative outside and they're going to come together as a group. Now I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to create a positive environment. But they're creating this positive environment for the sake of truth. They're leaving truth at the door And they're coming in and saying, there are no absolutes. We don't want to hear anything like that. All faiths can come in and all faiths can worship and we can have a good time. So you can see what they're trying to create, but in doing so, they're leaving truth at the door, no standards. That which is sound doctrine is left. And what they want to hear is stuff that makes them feel happy, that makes them feel positive. They don't want to be told that they're living a lifestyle contrary to how God has created them they want to be told that they can make God in their own image and place themselves at the center of the universe, and everything is just fine. So, look at verse 4. It says, They will turn away their ears from the truth and they will turn aside to myths. And that's what we see going on here. The last point this morning, point number four on the outline the minister of Christ's rewards for faithful service. Let's go to 2 Timothy 2, we'll be in verses 11 through 13. In verse 11, Paul's hammering this home. He says, It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So, Paul's doing now is he's encouraging Timothy. Encouraging Timothy during the struggles through his ministry, which he's facing from this persecution from Rome, to keep the knife sharp, to keep that kindle flame, that heart going for the Lord. Same thing that we are to do today in the midst of our culture to, to set aside the news, to set aside the media, to put down the newspaper, and just to focus on what God wants us to do. So he says in verse 11, For if we died with him, meaning if we died to ourselves, if we are born again, we will also live with him. So notice the negative. If we died with him, there's a positive. We will live with him. If we endure, in verse 12, we will also reign. Meaning if we're going through these struggles, if we're going through these trials and these circumstances, God has promised us that in his kingdom, we will reign with him. So there's the negative and then there's the positive. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Who do we recall that denied Jesus? was Peter, right? Denied him three times. Not that Peter lost his salvation, but if we're unfaithful to God at certain points, when we stand before him, we're going to have to give an account as to why we were not faithful to him. So he does, we can, in a sense, grieve the spirit. God wants that relationship with us. He wants us to be faithful with him at every point. But if we deny him, if we turn away from him, there will be a point, not losing our salvation, but there will be a point when we stand before him, we're going to have to give an account for that. But verse 13, if we are faithless, Meaning if we do sin, if we do stumble, if we do walk away for a little bit, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. That's the promise of justification. God will not go back on his promises to deliver us. Christ's faithfulness to us should motivate and relax us to remain faithful and sharp for him. We're in his control. We're in the providence of God. We're in his grace. Finishing up Second Timothy 4. So the last verse we'll look at. Verse 8. Paul's writing this and he says in the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all of those who love his appearing. Believers' crowns in the scriptures, there's five. An imperishable crown, how do we earn that? For leading a discipled life, a disciplined life. A crown of rejoicing, how do we inherit that? For evangelizing and for discipleship. A crown of righteousness, just like Paul mentioned here in 4, verse 8, how do we inherit that? The crown of righteousness will be rewarded to those who are constantly and have constantly during their life been awaiting for the second coming of Christ or for his return. A crown of life, how do we inherit that? For enduring trials. James mentions this and so does the book of Revelation. Revelation. And the fifth crown is a crown of glory. And we inherit that for shepherding God's flock faithfully. So there's five crowns mentioned in Scripture. The one Paul says here is the crown of righteousness. And for those who have their mind continuously in tune with the Lord, these crowns are metaphorical. And what they're stating is there will be rewards for those. We will inherit these eternal rewards for our faithful service to Christ here and now. So God is keeping score. The little things, the small things in life matter. And what really matters is how our hearts are and how our minds are. And from that, whatever works, whatever ministry God has called us into, that's what we do faithfully and we wait for his coming. So I think Steve is going to come up. We're going to finish here this morning and we're going to finish with a song. Um, Worship team can come up. Let's just uh, finish in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for your word, for your God-breathed word, that we all have a copy of it sitting in our laps We have an abundance of resources, Lord, and we just honor you with them. And we just pray we keep our mind and our focus on you and go before us this week. And uh, Lord, we'll just close in this worship and we thank you for all things in your son's name. Amen.